30 years ago, Governor Tommy Thompson made history when he created the first school choice program in America. And today, thanks to their leadership and the support of the people of Wisconsin, more than 40,000 students are able to attend the school of their choice. Governor Tommy Thompson, thank you again for your extraordinary vision and leadership. Governor Thompson is the father of school choice in Wisconsin. And if it weren't for his bravery to stand up against all the education status quo of this state and the nation, we might not all be here today. So thank you, Tommy. Take education in Wisconsin. I had a radical idea. Let's trust parents. I wanted, I wanted to give a poor family, I wanted to give a poor family in the central city of Milwaukee the same choice that other parents have. The choice between a public or a private school. I'm Kevin Nicholson, and this is the Right Idea Podcast. In addition to the Green Bay Packers, dairy farming, and outstanding outdoor recreation, Wisconsin is famous for being the birthplace of school choice. In 1990, Republican Governor Tommy Thompson worked with Democrat State Representative Annette Polly Williams to spearhead a bipartisan plan to give low-income inner-city Milwaukee children high-quality education options through the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program a program that offered vouchers for low-income students to use to attend private school. Since then, the program has grown under the leadership of other Wisconsin conservatives, including the 2012 launch of multiple school choice programs. Today in Wisconsin, we have the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, the Racine Parental Choice Program, the Wisconsin Parental Choice Program, and the Special Needs Scholarship. But in Wisconsin, school choice means more than just public vouchers to attend private schools. It includes open enrollment to other public school districts, virtual and online learning, homeschooling, and private schools paid with private tuition. As we start our journey, it's important to understand the history and evolution of school choice. To that end, Andrew Campanella of National School Choice Week explains how our national job market has evolved over the past 30 years, demanding more from our public education system. Let me start back about 30, 35 years ago. That was around the time where we as a country saw that we were facing tremendous challenges. And those challenges were that in the past, you could send kids to schools in communities, and even if they didn't do great in school, even if they didn't perform well, they had a fighting chance at being able to get a middle-class job. Well, those jobs have increasingly left our country, gone to other countries through outsourcing and trade. And the reality was that in today's economy, or the economy of 30 years ago, we needed to increase the level of skills that kids had in order to effectively compete for good jobs. So what our country realizes, we need to change the delivery of education. We can't expect that kids will be able to succeed regardless of how they perform in school in their careers. So. The idea came about, let's give families more options and opportunities so that they could find environments where their kids would get those skills, where they would be inspired, and where they'd be able to pursue career paths and job opportunities in the new economy. 
you look back in the 1980s during the Reagan administration, the U.S. Department of Education put out a report called A Nation at Risk. And that report demonstrated that if we don't innovate in education and we don't change the way we provide education to kids because of the dramatic economic changes in the country at the time and predicted, we would have significant loss in uh, earnings in terms of individual people earning money and being able to build wealth, uh, own homes, have jobs that they succeed at in their country, and a loss of you know, the growth of knowledge, which is so important. So the Nation at Risk report, A Nation at Risk, really catalyzed people into action. And it encouraged educators and parents and state lawmakers to work together to come up with new ways to deliver education. And the vast majority of those changes, the ones that have stuck, have been in the school choice realm, giving parents more options so they can choose works for their kids. Jonathan Butcher, Senior Policy Analyst at the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation, highlights the history of federal involvement in public education that led to the need for more education options. The U.S. Department of Education is a relatively new, or it is a new, agency with, with respect to other cabinet-level agencies. It, you know, created in 1979, 1980, and, you know, that agency, despite all of the initiatives that have been uh, tried to be pushed through that agency over the years, you know, everything from the No Child Left Behind to um, attempts before that to reform, you know, um, different things like like content standards and this whole Common Core movement that some people may be familiar with because it's, you know, it's pretty recent. But even going back into the, the 1990s, um, despite all of the different ways that Washington has tried to um, adjust what happens in local schools, the, the outcomes really have been stagnant. I mean, the best measures that we have for student achievement on long-term indicators from reading and math show that 17-year-olds are at the same place today as they were in the early 1970s uh, when they first began measuring this particular assessment uh, on the nation's report card. So, you know, I think part of what's involved in that is Washington has a a relatively small financial piece of the pie. They're only about eight and a half percent of all expenses. So, you know, your local school typically receives spent money from uh, the state general fund, uh, local property taxes, generally speaking. And then you have this tiny little sliver that comes from the federal government. Much of that money is directed towards schools that have children uh, from low-income families. Uh, the Title I is what's generally is what's referred to as the, the part of the federal education law that goes to uh, children from low-income families, and that's the largest portion um, financially, you know, as a as a as a proportion of the whole. And so, um, it's it's a small financial amount. Now, the the difficulty becomes when Washington gets involved in something, uh, they send regulations along with it. And, and expectations that there is a, a pretty, you know, pretty serious level of reporting that follows, and uh, that reporting and that kind of bureaucratic work, you know, winds up um, kind of um, uh, it, it gets in the way. I think of what um, uh, school districts would, you know, otherwise do in, in many cases. But it, you know, it also kind of creates constituencies that protect their pieces of the pie. You know, their pieces of of spending because. You know, everything that comes through a 
state education formula or the federal education formula is is just that it's coming through a formula that is directed to help certain areas and so the individuals that uh, are really interested in those areas everything from children with special needs to after school programs try to protect those areas and they they will do it at the expense of anything else and and whether or not it's good you know good or effective policy so you wind up with this large agency that controls a lot of programs a very small amount of money but everyone seems to look to that agency as though there's some sort of directive coming from the U.S. Department of Education that should result in improvement, and it just hasn't happened. As we examine the impact of school choice, it's also crucial to understand some of the basics of school choice and the education options that are available to parents and students in Wisconsin. Libby Sobik, Director and Legal Counsel of Education Policy at the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, or WILL, provides some background. School choice is valuable because it's the belief that a child's education shouldn't be limited by their income or their zip code. School choice is the idea that every child, no matter who they are, where they live, or their needs, has, should have access to a high-quality school. And in Wisconsin, that looks like a lot of different programs. We could have students access a different public school. We could have students access a private school. We could have students access a charter school. And students could be homeschooled. We have a lot of options that give parents and students the ability to choose the best school for their child. Wisconsin was the first state to create vouchers in 1990. That has created a wave of school choice voucher programs across the country. 18 states today have such programs. When we also talk about school choice, we talk about charter schools. And those are public schools, but they have less red tape than traditional public schools, and they allow for more innovation in the classroom and in the structure of the school. So when we talk about school choice and whether it's working, we tend to look at those two types of schools, private schools in the voucher program and public charter schools. And the evidence is incredibly clear that school choice is absolutely working. And it's not just on these national studies that have followed students and compared them to their traditional public school peers. We've seen in studies that if you are a student at a private school on a voucher, you are more likely to graduate and go to college. You're more likely to graduate college. You're more likely to, have, to not uh, be involved in criminal activity. And on our state report cards, our private schools participating in the voucher program are outperforming their public school peers. And so the evidence is really clear that on the voucher program, students are succeeding and having, um, succeeding in all measures, right? Not only in the classroom, but then going off to college and having better lives by not being involved in crime. On the public charter school side, we also see that on our state report cards, they are some of the best schools in the state. And these are schools that are primarily located in the Milwaukee area, serving economically disadvantaged students from uh, all of communities and serving students with disabilities. And yet, they're able to help these students be more successful in the classroom based on our state's report card. Wisconsin State Senator Alberta Darling, a Republican whose district abuts the Milwaukee Public School District, along with Libby Sobic from Will, explain how the school choice programs in Wisconsin were created. Yes, and so I, I, when I came to the Senate, I was very impressed with Polly Williams and her effort to expand public school choice. In fact, she would say, 
it's our obligation is to follow the child and give the child opportunities. Our our role is not to pr protect the public school system in general. It, the role is to protect the child and give them the very best option possible. But I was very committed to the students and very committed to those families who really believed that education was the answer to this future of their child. So when we um, prepared to expand school choice, I had a really hard time with senators in general who believed, as I mentioned, that we were going to ruin public education. And that was not my goal. My goal was to improve the public education system by giving parents the choice of where their children could go. And I had the opportunity to work with Governor Thompson too, and he was very, very passionate about this issue. So I was happy to join him and Polly Williams to say this has to be a priority of the state, and it was. I'm very proud to say we've strengthened the public education system by giving choices. So what the public schools had to do was say, how are we competing with the schools around us? How do, are we competing with the choices parents have? And so it strengthened our, our public school system to make not only the public schools more aware of their need to compete with uh, other schools around these families. So it's actually strengthened our public school system. And I've been very happy to be a part of that because school has been, and education has been a big priority for me. School choice really started in a bipartisan manner with Governor Tommy Thompson and Representative Polly Olson in 1990. Over the last 30 years, school choice has become incredibly partisan, both in Wisconsin and nationwide. But here in Wisconsin, we see that just comparing our most previous, our recent and our previous governor. During Governor Walker's tenure, not only did he continue to support the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, but he expanded the program to both Racine and statewide, which means any student in the state of Wisconsin who meets the economic threshold has the act has the ability to access a voucher. It's not a perfect process, but the the structure is really there for our students to access vouchers all over the state. He also created the special needs scholarship program, which is a voucher for students with disabilities to be able to leave their traditional public school and access a private school. And that's been transformational for our most vulnerable students. Many times, students with disabilities feel like they can't leave their traditional public school because they require so many extra services and funding to really make sure that their education is sound. Our special needs scholarship program allows those families they access to attend a private school with a little bit more money and really get a high quality education that's customized to those students. This idea of competition, right, that if there's another school that can compete with you, then all of a sudden you have to start responding to the marketplace because you have to, you have to earn to keep your students in your school rather than having a monopoly and just keeping them. It seems the opposite of where we are as, where we are as a society to this individualization of education. It's very much of this is the only option and you are stuck here. And if it's not right for you, too bad, too sad, so sad. And that's awful. We should be encouraging every family to access school choice and the best high quality uh, option for their child. Ori DeAngelis is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom and the director of school choice at the Reason Foundation. He discusses how the data shows that when faced with competition from school choice programs, public schools do, in fact, improve. Competition from, you know, you know, private school choice programs or charter school programs, it has a couple of financial, you know, effects. And then also there's competitive effects on the students who are left behind and or who just 
for whatever reason, choose to remain in the traditional public schools. And so there's like 27 studies on this that look at the effects of, of private school choice competition on the kids who, you know, their academic performance of the kids who remain in the traditional public schools. And those students actually tend to, to do better. 25 of the 27 existing studies on this find positive competitive effects of private school choice programs. And there's also a 2019 meta-analysis that summarizes all these studies and similarly finds uh uh, statistically significant positive effects uh, on, on students who remain in the traditional public schools. Uh, but then also, the traditional public schools actually financially benefit when they lose students to school choice competition. And the reason for this is that all those schools are, are funded based on student enrollment counts. They're not fully funded based on student enrollment counts. So like in in most states, it's, you know, about 60 to 80 percent of funding is driven by, you know, the number of students in your school. So what that means is that when a traditional public school loses a student, they get to keep 20 to 40 percent of the funding. So whenever you hear, you know, school choice deniers arguing that, you know, a school choice drains funding from traditional public schools, the opposite is actually true because they get to keep 20 to 40 percent of the revenues for a student who is no longer there. So mathematically, that means that these schools end up with more money per child uh, left behind in, in the traditional public schools. So this could be another reason why we see that the kids who, who remain in the traditional public schools um, actually tend to do better. And in Milwaukee, I think there's five or six studies that have looked at this, you know, what happens uh, as a result of school choice competition in Milwaukee. And all five or six studies that exist on this find statistically significant positive effects on the kids left behind or who remain for whatever reason in the traditional public school system. Not only does competition raise the stakes, it actually has a positive impact on everyone. Jim Bender from Wisconsin School Choice, an organization that advocates for families to have more educational options, highlighted the key to the success of these school choice programs, parental involvement, and the data behind why parents are choosing to enroll their children in choice programs. So one of the things I say on the particular topic about parent involvement is, are the parents more involved that are choosing to pull their students out of a public school and put them into a private school via the choice program? Or, my argument is, are the parents given an opportunity to be more involved in that particular school that they are doing? One of the things we know from parent surveys is that one of the reasons that parents choose a school that they do is the responsiveness of the administration to what the parents want for their child and the opportunities that the parents have to impact their child's education inside the classroom that they sit. Yes, parents have the ability to work with their children at home, doing homework, doing different things. That, that's their uh, time to do that. And we'll get back to another kind of perspective on is education an extension of parents or is education an extension of government? That's one of the key things. But back to this point on parents, I always ask public school superintendents, what can your parents tangibly impact inside your school during the day? You're a parent of a child. Does that parent get to choose the teacher, the classroom that they're in? Do they get to choose? Do they have a direct impact on curriculum? Do they have a direct impact on field trips? Do they have a direct impact on 
sports? Do they have a direct? What are the direct impacts that they have? A direct impact is not gathering parents, appealing to your school board, making motions, taking months to do things. Hopefully you can get through there or involved in school board elections or running for the school board, all of which things are weeks, months, years of work to do, passing resolutions, doing those things. Yes, those are all possibilities. For the vast majority of parents that may be having an issue with a child or maybe having an issue with a teacher, those are not viable options that they can feel like they have control over, right? So I'm always of the mindset that most things come back to fairly predictable human behavior. Most things that happen in society, when people react a certain way, it's not unexpected. Most of the time we see the way that things happen. A private school or any entity that only exists with parents voluntarily walking through the front door, they have a different perspective about how they treat them because they are voluntarily walking through the door, which means they can voluntarily walk through a different door. You treat that person differently. You have a different relationship with them. I'm not saying it's better or it's worse. Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, summarizes Jim Bender's point. At the end of the day, the question is, how responsive is a school to parent and student needs? That's the secret to the demand for school choice. Uh, but the other thing is that public schools respond to incentives just like any other institution responds to incentives. That means that they also respond to competition. When families have an exit option, if things are not working and they know we can take our money and we can go elsewhere, the schools recognize that as well, and the schools step up their game. They improve their performance in response to the competition. Uh, and we've seen this uh, particularly, I live in Arizona, which has a very robust school choice environment. Uh, there have been cases where a charter school opens up and they advertise, we have core knowledge curriculum here. And parents start flocking over to that school and then a year or two later, you see the public school advertising, we have core knowledge curriculum here. In other words, uh, what's happening is that families who weren't getting their needs met, who wanted something else, when that option becomes available, they go to it. Uh, and then the public schools respond by actually asking parents, hey, why are, you, why are you leaving? What was it that we weren't providing that you were looking for? Oh, it was, you know, Singapore math. Oh, it was that we were more... Um, responsive to you when you called about with questions about your child oh it's a particular curriculum that you wanted or after school uh, whatever it is we're going to start providing that so uh, having choice and competition actually has the net effect not only of benefiting those families that take advantage of it and, and use it but also benefit those students who remain in the district school system as Jim Bender points out, that's where many public schools are falling short. They're missing the importance of adapting to human nature when educating kids. There are aspects to the theories behind public education that are strongly held beliefs by some of serving all, making things free and open, and I, and I understand all of those arguments, so I'm not making a better or worse. But I am saying it's different that when you have an entity, in this case a private school, that's working with parents or clients or whoever might be on a voluntary basis, you just treat them differently. And so part of the issue that I have with some of the opponents of school choice 
they don't embrace that or want to learn from the private schools about how they work with parents that can enhance that relationship between the parents and the schools. They just use it to discount that relationship. They're not looking to what is the human nature part of this or what could they do at the public school over here that would potentially make parents want to keep their kids there or would enhance that would not want to make their parent go over here to a private school. So it really comes down to a fundamental perspective, not so much what are the individual things of what classes are offered, AP classes, sports, those other things. And those come into play for certain schools and certainly physical location, convenience for parents. Those types of things can be influenced. But what we know from talking to school leaders, both public and private, and doing parent survey is the reaction and the responsiveness of a private school to the parents and meeting their needs is just a majority of the time an overwhelming factor in why parents are putting their children into certain schools. That's not academics. It's not because my kid's going to get into college or my kid's going to get into this trade. Oftentimes it doesn't even get to that level certainly right away. Those are longer term things. It's just that human interaction. How is this entity responding to me and satisfying what I think are the needs of my family and my kids? And so that's a perspective. That's not an objective, measurable thing. That's just how are you treating those people? And that oftentimes is the overarching reason why school choice programs grow, at least in Wisconsin, at the rapid pace that they do because the parents have this feeling like they're, they're being responded to. And so that gets back to the same question. Is it just because the schools are doing that, back to the parents, or are the parents tangibly given opportunities to be involved in some of those decisions at the school level and they find that to be a more rewarding experience. And, and that's a conversation that we should be having. One of the things that we did, um, I was on the committee that developed the statewide report card. And it has a broad array of measures on gap closure, on attendance, on graduation rate, on academic performance, all sorts of different things. One of the things where I think it fails because I took the perspective, as did many people on the, the public sphere. It wasn't just me, but many people on the public sphere. When we asked the question, why are we doing this? Why are we creating a report card? Obviously, policymakers want to have some idea. The people involved in the education want to be able to evaluate their school, right? But at another level, this is very much for parents and taxpayers to have, okay? But in particular for parents, I kept repeating to the group, these are a lot of great measures that we can see what's going on for university people, for academics, for curriculum folks, for DPI, you know, the uh, bureaucrats, for even for some policymakers. But for parents, a lot of this information is a very small slice of the reasons why they're choosing schools. So what we did shortly thereafter, because then there was some accountability information that came out um, and some policies and bills that were introduced and some different things, and we were driving a narrative that was, let's start looking at what parents are using. So we did a three-year open records request for every school building in Milwaukee, public, private, charter, didn't make any difference. What were the police calls to those school buildings? And when we got that back, we showed um, the results were pretty dramatic in that 
the private schools in the voucher program had a significantly lower number of police calls. Then when we started digging through the academic data, we started digging through enrollment data, some very interesting trends came to be. The schools with the lowest number of calls happened to also be the schools with, generally speaking, the highest academic performance. Also, we saw very much driven, much more actually by the safety data than by the academic data, was that enrollment trends went towards schools with the lowest number of calls and away from the schools that had the highest number of calls. Again, what I said before, most of these things come down to pretty basic human nature that are not surprising. If you have two schools near a family's home, one of them has police lights around it all the time and another one doesn't, which school is the family likely to place their child in, regardless of academic performance? If you are worried about your child's safety at school, you are likely and first and foremost to place your child in a safe setting. Now that comes down to school culture much more so than academic performance. As it turns out, of course, a lot of what school culture does is also drive academic performance, but that gets into discipline and expectations and other things that go on inside schools. And again, what we talked about before, that interaction between parents and schools. Corey DeAngelis conducted national research on this issue, also finding what Jim Bender discovered in Wisconsin. He confirmed that schools participating in choice programs tend to be safer throughout the rest of the country as well. So I just released one of these studies looking at charter school safety in New York, uh, throughout the whole state and New York City, and I just released another one yesterday on the state of Pennsylvania, and the findings are very similar, that public charter schools tend to be a lot safer than uh, government-run schools in both these states. But then also, this is a pretty clear finding in the, leech, in, in the research overall that charter schools tend to be safer than uh, the traditional uh, government-run schools. And I believe that the reason for that is because parents choose schools based on a lot of different things. And one of the things that they care most about is the safety of their children more than anything else. So it, it shouldn't surprise us all that much that we're finding that when parents actually get to pick their schools, well, they pick schools that tend to be safer than the schools that the, that their students are residentially assigned to. And in fact, we were talking about Florida earlier. They actually have a program, a private school choice program, specifically designed for students who were victims of violence or bullying in their residentially assigned public schools. Um, this is the first program that I know of in the United States that actually does this, but you qualify for a voucher if you are a victim of bullying or violence in your traditional public school. So I think more states should do this, uh, especially since the literature is pretty clear that when people get to pick either a private school or a charter school, um, they're, in, they're in safer environments. And, you know, if, if a school, if a charter school or a private school is not safe, I mean, it's going to shut down. No one's going to want to pick that school. Why, why would you voluntarily send your kid to a school that you know is dangerous? You want to do that. So, you know, this, this finding that I, that I found in my studies and others have found, you know, makes a lot of sense. This is why when we talk about what drives school choice, it oftentimes is not what's in the statewide report card. It's not about who's graduating into the elite colleges. 
That's part of it. Again, there's a part of all of that in all the educational decisions. But when we see, especially at the lower grades, which is where most of the activity takes place and most of the growth takes place inside school choice programs, those parents are looking for the real guttural base things, a safe environment with a responsive school staff on things that are tangible to them. Transportation is a big issue. Personal references from people that are in the school that they know that are tied to their locality. Sometimes they hear about it through their local church. You know, sometimes that church is running the school. Oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes, you know, most churches do not run schools, right? But they're hearing about the school at the, at the church. And so they're relaying these things in a very personal way. So I don't want to say that the academic performance and the academic success of schools doesn't play into the choice. It certainly does. But rarely is that the primary reason as to why it happens. And yet we spend an awful lot of time with public policy and public discussions and funding discussions and all these different things. We're using measuring sticks that parents are not using to choose a school. And that's unfortunate because I think as we get this higher percentage of parent-enabled decisions around where they're placing their children, we better start figuring out what are those reasons why the parents are choosing, and that's where education needs to be far more responsive in all sectors. I would argue the private sector, just by its market kind of tendencies, just because that's what it is when you're running a private school, you have to be a little bit more market-centric in what you're doing. That already lends itself to that type of relationship. But overall, I think that's a job where all educators could potentially do better is understanding the reasons why parents are choosing their schools. A school choice advocate in the Wisconsin State Assembly, Republican Representative Jesse Rodriguez agrees that parents are key to the success of the school choice movement. I became a proponent of this because of what I, the, the families that I worked with when I worked for the nonprofit organization. And I got to meet different uh, moms and different dads who would tell us, I, my child, it, you know, uh, he is bilingual or she is bilingual and I want them to go to a bilingual school. And would say, okay, there, there are schools for that. You know, another pa uh, parents who tell us, you know, my, my child is into technology and I just want to, you know, support that because I know he has an interest. Okay, we have schools for that and these are them. And it's getting to know parents and realizing that they have, uh, they want the best for their child and they're looking for other choices or other options. When I started meeting parents and they were asking for this, it became obvious that having options was the best way to help these families and these kids succeed. So that for me became like the selling, you know, uh, factor for me uh, on the program because there was a need and people were asking for them and luckily there were options for them and we as an organization at that time we were going to continue to make to advocate that there be options for that and you know I think the drive the driver of these programs are parents by far it's we can make as many legislation as we can in in this building but if parents are not motivated to to do uh what they feel is right for their children none of these programs would exist the choice program wouldn't exist if parents weren't motivated to enroll their child it's not a given 
I mean, every child is in the state of Wisconsin is required to have an education. And most of them go to a public school. But some parents choose, and on their own um, uh, volition, to go to uh, a different school, enroll their child, and be as involved as possible in those, in those uh, schools. So none of this would be a success if it weren't for parents who were motivated and felt that they, they had an option and that they knew what option was best for their children. To understand the stories and the arguments made in this season of the Right Idea podcast, it's also important to understand that each choice program in Wisconsin has different eligibility requirements. For the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, families must be Milwaukee residents and make 300% or less of the federal poverty level. For example, someone with one child can make no more than $37,470 a year. Of course, that number varies based on the number of children in the family. For the Racine Parental Choice Program and the Wisconsin Parental Choice Program, families must reside in Racine or Wisconsin, respectively, with incomes of no more than 220% above the federal poverty level. For someone with one child, for example, the maximum income to qualify would be $27,478 a year, and that number toggles up if more children are in a family. The Special Needs Scholarship Program has no income requirements. However, students who apply to the program are required to have an IEP an individualized education program, something that the federal government requires public schools to create in coordination with parents to personalize special education services for eligible students' individual needs. Ultimately, there's a lot of details to navigate, and each year, usually at the start of the year, the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction sets an enrollment period for school choice programs. Libby Sobic from Will explains how the inconsistencies in eligibility requirements between these school choice programs can ultimately create barriers for students and their families. I'll give you an example. Here in Milwaukee, St. Marcus Lutheran Schools is a kindergarten through eighth grade school. They serve over 700 students on the voucher program. It's incredible, and they're one of the best schools in Milwaukee and in the state. But statewide, it's really difficult for a private school to get 700 kids because you have to get into the program at certain points. If you're coming from a private school, you have to be in kindergarten, first, or ninth grade. So if you're a student who's at a private school in second grade, you have to wait till ninth grade to get into the program. That's a huge barrier. One of the biggest concerns people have about school choice is the cost, and it's an important issue to discuss. What is the difference in cost to the public of educating a student in a traditional public school versus a school choice program? The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel looked at this question, and in 2019, the state of Wisconsin incurred a cost ranging from $11,180 a year to $22,000 a year to educate a student in a traditional public school. In Milwaukee, specifically, the average annual cost of educating a student in a traditional public school is $15,250 a year. But in the voucher program, the state provides only $7,530 a year for K-8 students and $8,176 a year for students in grades 9 through 12. Wisconsin State Representative Jeremy Thiesfeld, Chairman of Wisconsin's State Assembly Education Committee, breaks down the differences in funding. The truth of the matter is, is that uh, a, a voucher, so to say, is significantly less amount of money than what it costs for a child to go to a public school. Uh, I, I know this for a fact because I taught in these schools. Uh, I, I know what it costs to send my kids to the schools. I never had a voucher. Uh, we, we paid for it all out of our pocket, and I have no regrets in doing that. But I also know that not everybody has an opportunity to be able to do that. Uh, 
Uh, and so it, it really is a good deal for the taxpayers. You know, the, the more kids we can get in a school that uh, costs the taxpayers, say, $9,000, than a school that costs the taxpayers, say, you know, somewhere in there at twelve dollars to $15,000, well, that certainly sounds like a good deal to the taxpayers to me, and it's an even better deal if the statistics hold true, which I believe they are, they're getting a better education in those schools. Uh, and so why would we not want more kids to be in those schools? Um, and you know, th this idea that it's taking money away from the public schools, it is not, because they are able to raise uh, their revenue limit uh, in order to match the money that's going out uh, to these students. And, and that really is a good deal for the public schools because some of these kids, we're not likely to go there anyway. And so they're getting money for these kids that we're never going to go to the public school. Jim Bender from Wisconsin School Choice points out that public school funding also varies based on a number of different property tax formulas. Property taxes, which in the state of Wisconsin, there's variances all over the place, but in property taxes, you get about 40% of your local spending from property taxes, 60% from state spending. I guess if you're talking aggregate, probably 50% in state state and then 10 percent in federal those are very broad it changes amongst every district um, and you know of the 400 some odd districts maybe you know a handful fit that exact number but it's a variance those are averages but it's, so it's very difficult because you can have one district literally touching another district and their funding mechanism is dramatically different because of their property values inside their district so you're going to go from an 80-20 split on state aid to property taxes to 50-50, literally next door, it could happen. I mean, and, it's, and it dramatically changes the way things happen. The ratio of how they're funded between equalized aid and property taxes and other issues, maybe internally that's the way it is. In gross dollars, that's not really what we're seeing. What you're seeing is inequities tied back into when they did you know, revenue caps for the first time because they locked districts in from where they were at spending at that point. From a public policy stance, in hindsight, you maybe should have made everybody equitable, then locked everybody in. I mean, that's been some of the discussion this last year is that you had low spending districts that have had their uh, spending locked in for you know decades now, but they were locked in at a really low level. So even though they've grown over the same time, the high spending districts were rewarded because they've spent thousands of dollars more per child every year for decades, and the low spending districts are like, hey, we were good stewards of taxpayer dollars. We were frugal a long time ago at locked in. Why have we not been able to at least get caught up to where the other districts are? And that's a public policy debate that's happening inside. It was a big part of the last couple of budgets is trying to get low spending districts up to equitable funding. Now, from the private school choice program, we would say, hey, this group over here that's actually doing really well academically, growing rapidly, even compared to a low spending district, the voucher is still way below. Independent charities that are knocking it out of the park in Milwaukee, they're getting eight grand a kid. But when it comes to state and local dollars, we're of the public policy stance that all children should be funded equitably. I, mean, I would argue you first need to get all children equitable. And then if there are public policy reasons why some children should receive more funding than others, I think that's a discussion that we should have. I think that should be a, a broad public discussion before a decision is made on that. Corey DeAngelis makes the case that, despite the complexity of funding public schools, school choice programs educate students while using less money, meaning they're actually saving taxpayers money. And also
also benefit it tends to benefit the taxpayer too. If you look at the programs in Wisconsin, for example, I think the average voucher value was around eight thousand dollars in the most recent school year. But the traditional public schools spend about uh, eleven or twelve thousand dollars statewide in, in Wisconsin. So, you know, you're you're spending about seventy percent of what you you, you would have spent in the traditional public schools. So when kids switch from the public schools to the private school, the taxpayer actually tends to benefit as well. So, like in in most states, it's you know about sixty to eighty percent of funding is driven by you know the number of students in your school. So what that means is that. When a traditional public school loses a student, they get to keep 20 to 40% of the funding. So whenever you hear, you know, school choice deniers arguing that, you know, a school choice drains funding from traditional public schools, the opposite is actually true because they get to keep 20 to 40% of the revenues for a student who is no longer there. So mathematically, that means that these schools end up with more money per child uh, left behind in, in the traditional public schools. I mean, the reality, I just want to say again, is that, you know, government schools drain money from families. School choice just gives, puts the money back into the hands of the rightful owners of that money. The, the money's for the students. It's we, we should be funding students and not systems. I mean, if we look at any other type of government program that funds individuals, it, it funds individuals. It doesn't fund the institution. So like with food stamps, for example, we would all think it's, it would be ridiculous if the food stamps went to a residentially assigned government grocery store. It would be totally ridiculous to not allow families to just be able to pick a private grocery store with their food stamps. So similarly, it's totally ridiculous that the money goes straight to schools. It should get, the money should go to families. And fa- if families want to pick government schools, that's fine with me. It should be fine with anybody else in the movement as well. Uh, but the thing is, and, and again, related to that, if the government schools are actually doing a good job, they won't lose mon- any money whatsoever because no one will leave when given the option to leave them. Um, so if, if any money is being lost from, from the government schools at all, the government schools should look at themselves and wonder why students don't want to go to their schools. And, you know, that, 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 sh- that should be the real thing that, that we should talk about. In Wisconsin, the cost of educating a student with special needs who has an IEP can range from $12,000 a year to over $30,000 annually. Today, the Special Needs Scholarship provides schools with $12,723 a year for each student receiving the scholarship. Libby Sobic from Will highlights some ways that policymakers could help families with students with special needs, particularly through the use of education savings accounts. We also can look to our peer states and really see the policies that are working and that are sort of school choice 2.0. One of those is something called an education savings account, or it's also known as an ESA. We actually tried to have one here in Wisconsin in 2017 for gifted and talented students. And unfortunately, that legislation was unable to move forward, but it would have given access for gifted and talented students the ability to take essentially like a debit card of state funding and go use it for education-related expenses. So it could be tuition, it could be tutoring, it could be online classes, it could be curriculum. So the idea would be to give those students a really important population of our students who are could do, be even more um, and be excel more in classes. We could have given them access to more uh, resources so they could be successful. That didn't pass and I think that'd be a great place to start for Wisconsin. 
we've seen these education savings accounts in four other states. States like Florida and Arizona have created them for students with disabilities. So kind of similar to our special needs scholarship program concept, we say, they're saying to those students in their states, we want to make sure you have access to a high quality education and that you aren't stuck in a school that you're unhappy with. Here's an ESA that you can use to really expand your child's education options. Jason Bedrick of EdChoice underscores the importance of the ESA serving as a platform for innovation and notes that even an educational innovator like Wisconsin would benefit from adding an educational savings account program. Uh, Wisconsin has fallen behind uh, states like Arizona and Florida and North Carolina and even uh, Tennessee and, and Mississippi in that it does not yet have an education savings account program. Uh, so whereas the traditional voucher programs uh, allow families to choose a private school that, that works best for their children, uh, education savings accounts uh, empower families to choose from a, a much wider menu of options, one of those being uh, private schools, but also tutoring, textbooks, online learning, homeschool curricula, and then they can even take unused funds uh, and roll them over from year to year to save for future educational expenses. Uh, you know, for example, high schools are usually more expensive. They could even save uh, for college. Uh, so it's really empowering families uh, to tailor their child's education to and customize it to meet their needs. I, I think of uh, ESAs sort of like a platform for innovation, sort of like the iPhone, right? Uh, so when Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone, he knew that you could do uh, innumerable things with it, but he didn't actually know what sort of things it would be used for. Uh, you know, millions of people found different ways of using the phone uh, because it's not just a phone. Like I said, it's a, it's a platform for innovation. It's the same thing with the ESA. Uh, it's not just choice among different schooling options. Uh, you know, and there are more and less innovative types of schooling options. Uh, but with the ESA, you've got, for example, in Arizona, uh, which was the first state to adopt ESAs back in, in 2011, uh, the, it was initially for students with special needs. Uh, there are some students that are using it for what's called equine therapy, uh, which is a form of therapy that involves horseback riding. Uh, now, students that have uh, cerebral palsy often are unable to uh, even you know, do basic things like play on a playground. They have a hard time with balance and even just walking. But if they are uh, trained riding a horse, it helps to rewire their brain so that they can uh, acquire a sense of balance and even play on a playground, right? Uh, I, can, I know for a fact, because I've spoken to the people who came up with the program, they had no idea it would be used for this. But because it allowed for educational therapy, uh, families were able to use it to access something they otherwise might not have had access to. Uh, there are also families in Arizona that are using it for micro-schooling. Uh, so this is, it's not traditional schooling, it's not, um, it's not homeschooling either, but it's often groups of about five to ten children uh, that have what they call a guide instead of a teacher, but that's the adult who's trained basically to uh, help the children explore and learn on their own. Uh, so it's, it's sort of a combination of traditional schooling, unschooling, homeschooling, uh, and it's made possible because uh, families are able to access the ESA. You've got families that part of the day they're sending their child to a traditional school, part 
of the day they're learning with their child at home, part of the day they're using a tutor or their, or their children are online. Uh, or sometimes, uh, you know, one day they'll be uh, with a tutor all day, uh, and then three days a week they're in a traditional school environment, uh, and then one day they're at home. There's a, there's a variety of different things that they can do. They can mix and match, uh, and that's because they what we've done is we've changed the funding mechanism to allow education providers to innovate and give families the freedom to choose which providers are best meeting the needs of their children. Yes, I think that is the ideal in the school choice movement nationwide. I think the idea is that we created the traditional schools we know today, these brick-and-mortar schools. They were really created in the age of standardization for our country, where we wanted to make sure kids were receiving the same education so they could graduate and go get a job and help America grow. But we're in a different age today. You know, some people call it the age of individualization. This idea that we want to identify and um, support the unique aspects of our children's education needs and opportunities. And so an ESA would be the idea to do that. Instead of saying to a student, you live in this neighborhood, you have to go to this assigned school, or even you live in this neighborhood, but here are a bunch of school choice options, Instead, you'd say to that parent, here's an ESA for the amount of money that any school would receive if your child would go there. Go decide. Do you want to create a hybrid of classes at a school and online and tutoring? Do you want to homeschool and use this to really, where your child could access curriculum from all over the world online and then go take a class at the local college if they're really smart or they really want to learn more in science or biology? The idea would be that we'd say to every family, here's the opportunity to decide what's best for your child. We're not there yet. I think that we really need the infrastructure and the marketplace to exist for that to work for our families, particularly in rural Wisconsin, where you know, you're 30 miles away from the next town. But I think we're getting really close. We have great online options. We have charter schools and private schools and traditional schools that are really trying to react to this concept of individualization of our child's education. And so the future of school choice is bright. We just got to figure out how to get there. Tommy Schultz, Vice President of Communications and Marketing at the American Federation for Children, explains that education savings accounts are not simply the future. They're a reality today for states across the country whose school choice programs are performing exceptionally well. Education savings accounts are certainly the future, but it's already a reality for a lot of families across the country, uh, whether it's uh, Arizona, Florida, Tennessee is hopefully coming online soon. There's really more of a mechanism that says, hey, uh, your state government uh, will be depositing into an account, uh, you know, an allotted amount of education funding to where you can customize your child's education. So, sure, you can use that for uh, maybe a scholarship to a school, or you can use it for maybe a special needs therapy, or maybe for tutoring, maybe for books, transportation. And so I think you're going to start to see that more and more over the years, this uh, new ability to customize education in unique ways that meets the unique needs of the child. And hopefully uh, Wisconsin and other states that maybe only have the voucher mechanism, which is just uh, the straight disbursement of scholarship funds uh, for uh, tuition, uh, maybe they'll be able to change that up a bit and allow for more flexibility. Uh, a lot more work to be done for sure, but there's a lot of families that have already been benefiting from this and a lot of states that are 
figuring out that this is a great mechanism for families to customize their child's education. And who wouldn't want a sort of system like that, right? When you're a parent looking, maybe you have a few different children, they, they all learn differently, right? They all have different uh, needs and desires and hopes and dreams. You know, why don't we customize our education system to fit that rather than have a cookie cutter system that says one size fits all. While Wisconsin is the birthplace of school choice, it's no secret that states like Arizona and Florida are also leaders in the school choice movement. Jonathan Butcher at the Heritage Foundation explains how Arizona and Florida are using programs like education savings accounts to customize education for their students. In Arizona, Arizona has had um, uh, what, what is commonly known as open enrollment, which means that families can choose any public school in the state subject to space. And that was a pretty fascinating idea. And that, I think, um, based on the best numbers available, is the most widely used form of school choice in Arizona. And that began, that along with the charter school law, it sort of laid the, the foundations to build some private school options on top of that, including a tax credit scholarship law, which that the oldest tax credit scholarships um, program is in Arizona, as well as the nation's first education savings accounts. Now, on the other side of the country in Florida, Florida has um, a, a slightly different, I think, uh, experience of success. Florida had a, you know, a governor and Governor Jeb Bush who um, prioritized this issue and helped lead the way for a number of, of uh, reforms in the education space, one of them being private school choice. Florida now has the largest tax credit scholarship program in the United States. Tommy Schultz and Libby Sobic discussed the 2019 polls that revealed the fact that, despite the polarization of modern American politics, the public generally supports school choice. And of parents, which as I referenced earlier in the polling, 70% of parents want to go to a school that is not their zoned district public school. And so I think when you translate that into the real world statistics, it means if all things were being equal and every family had the opportunity to choose a school, it's around 40 million families going to a school that isn't their, the one they were assigned to. So we have a lot of work to do to help really service those families. But I think it's important to notice that, to note that school choice is really popular, not only in Wisconsin, but on the national scale. Just this month, Real Clear Politics released a, po a poll of registered voters and found that 68% of voters support some school uh, form of school choice. And I think that's a really big highlight and something that we need to remember as we continue to navigate our partisanship in politics on the local, state, and federal levels, that there is this is common sense to a lot of people. And in fact, families are using school choice all the time, and they just aren't even really aware that that's what they're doing. And so the more we educate and inform and mobilize the, our communities to talk about access to high-quality education, the more opportunities we'll have to push back on some of the partisanship in politics. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Right Idea Podcast, where we learn the basics of Wisconsin's bipartisan school choice history and about the three primary school choice programs in our state. Now it's time to visit with some of the educators, parents, and students who are participating in school choice in Wisconsin. On the next episode, join No Better Friend as we tour Crystal Ray Jesuit High School in Milwaukee. For future episodes and seasons, please subscribe to the Right Idea Podcast from No Better Friend Corp on Apple, Ricochet, Luminary, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And check us out online at www.NoBetterFriendCorp.com. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Kevin Nicholson, and this is the Right Idea Podcast.